This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Uh, We're back with our first industry deep dive of 2022, and we're talking about an industry that has a real place in your heart. Your black heart. <laughs> Not <laughs> true, but it is an industry that it's pretty. It's a fascinating one and it's going through a lot of change at the moment, which we're going to dive into, and that is the oil industry. That's it. That's it. Oil industry. Um, a lot going on. But before we jump into that, just very briefly, we spoke about our community survey that is now live. It's an opportunity for you guys to give us direct feedback on how uh, you think our content is going, everything uh, Equity Mates Media related, and it gives us the chance to create better content for you guys going forward. So please, the the link will be in the show notes. It'll also be on our Instagram bio. Uh, So make sure you go and fill that out. If you fill it out, all questions, it'll only take 15 minutes. You go in the the running to win $500. So um, it would be greatly appreciated if you could spend that 15 minutes on your way to work or wherever it may be uh, filling in the survey. It does close, I think, end of this month. month, Yeah, yeah. Do it while you're listening to this episode. Episode. Yeah, well, don't do that because then you won't be concentrating. Uh, the the <laughs> equity mates community can multitask. Uh, so, yeah, if you could, that would be really helpful. Uh, it'll help us make better content, even if it's just to tell us what industry we should do a deep dive on next. Um, just tell us because we want to know. Mm, Please. Mm, that's it. So if you've been hanging out to give us feedback, now's your chance to do it. Yeah, but let's get into this uh, industry deep dive because this is one that's particularly relevant at the moment. A lot of people probably wouldn't think about investing in the oil industry. I definitely don't have any oil in my portfolio. I'm going to hazard a guess despite my joke. I'm all oil. (laughs) Fair enough. Oil only. You've had a tough few years, but you're having a very good sort of six months. I'm swimming in it at the moment. (laughs) Uh, But it's particularly relevant because of this conversation around inflation that we're all living through to kick off 2022. And it's also relevant because oil is an input into everything. Name me an industry that doesn't have oil or energy as an input and I'll name you a software company. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Well, I was thinking about like what, but even they are sort of exposed to the oil industry, not really as much, but... Software. Yeah, yeah. Like some of their equipment they still need to get, you know. You reckon in every single industry somewhere along the supply chain yeah, yeah, oil would be involved? Because if you're 
if you're unless you're building something on a computer and and you're shipping it via the internet, uh, like you know cloud software or something like that, you're exposed to oil even in the the most basic form of like transport. Well, surely oil goes into producing a computer. Well, yeah, that's why I was like, there still are, but it's you know, yeah, it's tenuous. Yeah, 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 it's pretty weak. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, every industry is exposed to the cost of energy, and as much as the world is trying to transition away from the oil industry. Oil is still the biggest form of energy. I, I was actually uh, here listening to something earlier today. Nine percent of cars sold in America now are electric, which I think is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, it was either America or nine percent of the world. Big difference. That's a big difference. <laughs> still, apparently, in either tw- way, in twenty ten, it was zero. Good change. So good change in a decade. Need a bigger change in the next decade. But what that means is that 91% of cars being sold today. Oil. Still oil. Yeah. Let alone every used car that's being resold. So oil plays an integral role in all of our lives. And it's probably time that we understand this industry a little bit more. But it's also really relevant because of all this conversation around climate change. What are these oil companies, how are they positioning themselves for the future? They're seeing record profits, which we'll get to in this episode. Uh, yeah, they're seeing the best profits they've seen in you know, eight years for some companies. Um, what are they doing? They have some of the best executives, best business people in the world running these companies. Are they investing in alternative forms of energy, low carbon, carbon capture? Are they doubling down to find more oil reserves? What are they doing with this cash? So that was a question that we wanted to know. And so we're going to answer that uh, towards the end of this deep dive. But let's start with setting the scene. Where are we today, Bryce? Where are we today? Well, speaking of profits, I'm pretty sure at the time of recording this, Santos just released their earnings and uh, it's a record cash flow and underlying earnings for them, one of the big uh, oil oil guy players here in Australia. So I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of the companies a bit later, but, but where are we? We're about to see oil price back to over $100 a barrel, Ren. To put that into context, uh, if if you're like me and have been long and oil only since the day I was born, <laughs> not true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very not true. It's been an incredibly cyclical uh, uh, journey with uh, prices, I guess, uh, on a bit of a roller coaster for a very long period of time. Yeah, but I think the important thing to stress is that oil prices have cracked a hundred dollars a barrel four times in the last one hundred and fifty years. In like the US Civil War, they got to like 120 uh, a barrel. Would have been a good time to be investing in oil then. <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, but then in the supply shocks of like the late 70s, early 80s, in the early 2000s, and then again around the early 2010s, you notice that that's accelerating? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see the concentration in, yeah. the last, in the last 20 years and now we're almost going to see it again. Yeah. So, and it, it is just an incredibly volatile commodity. Mm. Do you remember 18 months ago, oil was negative $37 <laughs> yeah. a barrel? <laughs> yeah. You couldn't pay to get rid of it. You had to pay you to get rid to of it. To yeah, rid you of had it. to pay yeah. to get rid of it. So, uh, if you had gone long oil in the depths of COVID uh, when oil traders were literally paying people to take oil contracts off their hands, uh, you would have made a fair bit of money yeah. in the interim. Yeah. Before we get to why oil has spiked so much, let's just set the scene on the industry. Let's talk about how the price is set, how big it is, because some of the numbers are pretty staggering. So the oil industry is one of the largest sectors in the world, generating $3.3 trillion 
dollars in revenue annually. It's huge. Humans consume 97 million barrels of oil daily and I think we had a bit of a game in the office when we were uh, doing this and, and that's just a staggering number. Put it in context for me, Bryce. What's a barrel of a oil? A barrel of oil is equivalent to 42 gallons if you're uh, here in Australia and you're not sure how that converts to litres. So, uh, it's it's 15.5 billion litres per day. Yeah, I per think- day. It's like it's a bit less than four liters to a gallon. Fifteen point four billion liters a day, or five point six trillion liters of oil a year, and that's how much we consume. Mm. That's huge, huge amount of oil. It's that's that's hard to conceptualize, to be honest. As you said at the top, oil is a commodity, and the price is set purely by supply and demand. And we're going to get into the mechanics of that and who's controlling what a little bit later on. But uh, and you may have heard on the news, uh, it's reported quite often Brent crude oil. Um, that's one of the major global benchmarks that we uh, that we look at when it comes to prices. And West Texas Intermediate is another one that you'll often hear. Um, it's America's benchmark. Yeah. So the Brent crude is sort of seen as the global benchmark. It's based on uh, the oil fields in the North Sea. Yeah. West Texas Intermediate is used as America's benchmark. And then one that you don't really hear, but the third index, uh, the Dubai Oman Index, is used as the Gulf States benchmark into the Asia Pacific. But the three prices all move in concert. They'll never be the same. Yeah. Well, rarely will be the same um but they'll all sort of move directionally in the same way yeah they they're just based on different oil fields different regions that's that's a bit of a primer on how big this industry is 3.3 trillion dollars in revenue annually off 5.6 trillion liters of oil consumed no wonder everyone wants to be in it well a lot of people haven't wanted to be in it for the last few years. It's been a very easy trade for active managers to get out of oil because they said, you know, even if you said it was because of ESG, it's also just a terrible investment because oil prices were so low and they were losing money, all of that. The really interesting thing is do any active managers cycle back into oil when they're seeing just like super normal profits? I would have to call some and find out. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about why they're seeing super normal profits. Uh, what's going on with oil prices at the moment? So we've had COVID and the demand side has uh, kicked in faster than we anticipated. The recovery side, what I mean by that, People are coming back online and I, what I mean by online, travel, they're back out and about, economy's picking up, we're seeing fast growth in the States, Australia, we're seeing economy picking up here. And of course, with all of that comes uh, a greater demand for oil consumption, more people driving, more planes flying, you know, more cargo being shipped, all that sort of stuff. So we spoke at the, the top that it's a demand and supply relationship. So the demand side uh, is is really picking up. Uh, so that's one reason. And Ren, do you want to touch on the supply side? Yeah. So this, I think, is a lot of this is a supply side story. And this is where we get introduced to OPEC. Don't, don't. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, 13 countries involved in this oil cartel. Uh, do you want to name them? Algeria, Angola, Congo, Equatorial Guinea. Gabon, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. Now, and then we get introduced to OPEC Plus, which is just the 
more countries. More countries. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's uh, – Well, what's the difference? How the, Are the 13 countries the biggest producers and then the uh, no, OPEC no, no, plus? No. Like let's put it this way. Russia creates uh, – yeah. drills more oil than Algeria. Yeah, Equatorial Guinea. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how'd they miss out on the, the top 13, I guess? Uh, I don't it's know. It's Russia. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, when OPEC was created, it was the USSR. Yeah. Anyway, let's anyway, not get into it's it. It's not a history lesson. Uh, so there's 24 countries in OPEC plus the other 11, Russia, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Brunei, Ecuador, uh, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Mexico, Oman, South Sudan, and Sudan. Now, when we think about oil and when we think about big oil, we think about the companies like Exxon, um, Chevron, BP, Shell, those oil majors, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, control 6% of the oil and gas reserves. Whereas OPEC and other state-owned companies, so that includes the big ones, uh, Venezuela's state-owned oil company and China's state-owned oil company, own 88% of the world's reserves. So when we talk about oil's the supply side, OPEC and some of these other sort of state-owned oil companies control the lion's share of... Does that include Saudi Aramco? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're in OPEC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, they control the lion's share of the supply of oil. And the important thing is that OPEC either have been unwilling or more likely unable to meet their production quotas. So we're seeing big shortfalls at the moment from OPEC+. Plus. They haven't been able to basically hit their production quotas and some people cynically could say they want to drive the price up. Yeah, which they can definitely do it. Has def they've definitely done in the past. <laughs> uh, but apparently, uh, so I mean, I was just researching this to try and understand what the go is and it's all a little bit opaque, but a lot of the, you know, the JP Morgan analysts and stuff think that they actually just can't. They can't ramp up supply and production enough. Either way, there's a shortfall from OPEC. Who sets the quotas? OPEC. Okay, well, why don't they just <laughs> reduce the quotas? <laughs> because there's so many. Yeah, the dynamics but, of it. But a big thing is they don't want prices to go too high because if prices go too high, then American shale starts yeah, to yeah. become um, viable again. Yeah. And when then that is Puts increases the power supply. Back in and, yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a lot of geopolitical factors at play here. They want to sort of keep a price at the level that they want to keep it at. But, yeah, there's an OPEC shortfall. So for the purposes of this, demand has recovered faster than expected and supply hasn't been able to increase as fast as required. Yeah. And when demand is high and supply can't keep up, price goes what crazy. happens? Price goes up. Price goes up. Another impact on price is geopolitical tensions. Uh, we're seeing, obviously, talks of Russia invading Ukraine, which we, which will uh, lead to pushing up prices. And, and this really encourages uh, companies around the world to stockpile. If there's uncertainty, they're going to start buying more and more oil. And that really brings forward a lot of, a lot of the purchasing that they would be doing. Uh, and so, again, you're putting uh, demand pressure on the supply of oil. So it's, it's interesting to see what's going on there. Yeah, and that's in particular with the Russia and Ukraine situation. Uh, if Russia got sanctioned, if they invaded Ukraine mm. and then Western businesses couldn't buy Russian oil, then again, that would drive the price up. 
So JP Morgan put out a prediction. They think oil could reach as high as $125 a barrel this year. Barron's uh, reported that some analyst, I can't remember who, suggested that oil could go as high as $150 a barrel, which would be the highest price price ever ever. recorded. Do you know what the highest price ever was? I'm thinking just over 120, I think, from memory. 147 in 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's the situation. Oil prices are high. They will probably go higher. It's a supply and demand game at the moment. But it's always important when we talk about these commodity prices, when we look at these commodity uh, industries, the cure for high prices is high prices. And what do we mean by that? Well, on the Supply side, as prices rise, more and more marginal projects will come online because they'll be viable. You know, there might be a US shale oil uh, project that's only viable if oil reaches $120 a ton. But when it reaches $120 a ton, they start drilling there because it's profitable for them. For any commodity business, as prices rise, more and more marginal projects become viable and that increases supply. And then on the demand side, at some price point, we start to find demand destruction where people, businesses, governments start to change their behavior because prices are too high. And that's as simple as Bryce walking to work rather than driving his car to work because petrol prices are too high, all the way to businesses stopping non-essential business travel because airline tickets are too high. So you start to see that demand destruction, which then levels off demand a little bit. So the cure for high prices is high prices. That's always the mantra to remember when we're talking about commodity businesses and at some point that will happen here as well. Nice one, Ren. Well, that's the context of uh, the industry. We're going to take a quick break and then come back and look at the three main segments of the industry, uh, upstream, midstream and downstream. So uh, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
All right, Ren, well, there are three key segments to the oil industry. There's the upstream, midstream, and downstream. What do we mean by that? Yeah, so upstream are the guys and girls, the companies, if you will, uh, (laughs) actually explore for oil reserves and then extract it from the ground or from shale. They're the ones getting their hands dirty. Literally. They're the ones with drills. Yes, then midstream are those that transport the crude oil. Yes, so less dirty. A less dirty. So they're pipelines, tankers, trucking. Um, they get it from uh, where it's extracted to where it's refined. Yeah. Which leads us to the downstream players, which are the refineries themselves. They take crude oil and turn it into Olive everything oil. that we love today. Yes. Petrol, diesel, jet fuel, <laughs> kerosene, plastics petrochemicals you name it you name it it. they make it there's oil in everything (laughs) Uh, and so when we think about the oil industry we mainly think about the upstream players so let's start there there are three types of companies that you'll come across international oil companies so these are entirely investor owned Uh, they're interested in increasing shareholder value most of them are listed ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, Chevron the, you, the you big dogs, it. you've seen them all. You think about the companies that you think are evil. <laughs> so they're uh, international oil companies. Second one are national oil companies, and that's government-owned oil companies. They operate as extensions of the government or a government agency, usually provide fuel domestically at a discount, and they use their profits to financially support government programs not necessarily market orientated, not necessarily shareholder value creation focused. We're talking here- Country wealth creation. Yeah, we're talking here China National Petroleum Corporation. Biggest in the world, isn't it? I think so, but don't quote me on that. I think it is. Uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, although they are listed, they're still government owned. Um, And then Pemex in Mexico is another one. And then the third type of oil company that you'll come across is a national oil company with strategic and operational autonomy. So these these guys function as corporations, but they're they're not purely shareholder value creation driven. They're still focused on national goals and supporting the country's government. And they often balance the desire for profit with national concerns. So Petrobras in Brazil, Statoil in Norway are a couple of examples given there. Mm. So, Ren, in 2020, five countries accounted for over 50% of the world's total crude oil production. Who do you reckon is the largest? Well, I know who the largest <laughs> is, but it's surprising. Well, a lot of people would be surprised, I think. The US, the US number one, yeah. 15%. Coming in at 15%, you know, we see a lot of uh, the oil wealth over in uh, the Arab Emirates and those sorts of countries, and they do account for it. But Russia comes in second at 13% of crude oil production. Saudi Arabia, 12%. Iraq, 6%. And Canada, which surprised me, uh, at 5%. Yeah, Canada's a fascinating one. They have a lot of... um. Uh, it's like uh, t- uh, oils in sand, in like tarry sand. Um, Gee, and that's when an we, extraction When process. we talk about marginal projects, yeah, like that's more expensive. Oh, yeah. my goodness. You're not um, just digging a hole in the ground. And there was a lot of controversy. We're about to get to midstream about a big pipeline that ran from the oil sands in Canada all the way down to 
I think ports in like New Orleans in the Gulf um, that Obama, I think, stopped. And anyway, it was wow. a big political thing. Um, but yeah, Canada, massive oil producer. Canada and Australia are very similar. We are British colonies that are seen as pretty progressive and love dirty energy. <laughs> digging stuff digging. up. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do a quick whip around around the world. Um, Middle East, the biggest company over there, Saudi Aramco. China has China National Petroleum Corporation. Russia, you most likely would have heard of Gazprom. And then America and Europe are home to the seven super majors, what, as they call them, otherwise known as big oil. Yeah, when you hear big oil, big like oil. that is a term used for these... Uh, I, I've got a bone to pick with the oil industry. The <laughs> different articles you read, they either talk about seven super majors, six super majors, or five super majors, and it seems no one can agree if Conoco Phillips and NI should be counted as part of big oil or not. So sort it out. Other industries have sorted it out. You know, <laughs> in accounting, they've agreed on the big four big, in Australia. It, no, 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 globally, isn't it? Is it PwC, Deloitte, oh, EY, yeah, yeah. KPMG? Yeah. Uh, in Australia, we've agreed on the big four banks. Macquarie's not saying make it the big five. There's an agreed <laughs> upon big four and we settle on that. The oil industry, it's confusing. But let's talk about the, the broadest definition of big let's oil. Let's go the big seven. Which is the big seven. So talk me through them. BP, Britain, heard of it, massive. <laughs> <laughs> ExxonMobil, US. Chevron, US. Any yeah. is in Italy. Shell is uh is Britain. Total Energies uh is a French company, and then Conoco Phillips over in the US. So so that's the big uh seven super majors, and they control six percent of global oil and gas reserves, as we said at the top, while OPEC and the state-owned companies control eighty-eight percent. So despite these companies being huge, some if not all publicly listed, all publicly, uh, all publicly listed. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, they don't have a whole lot of control. Yeah, and uh, because of that, the Financial Times tried to get the news, they called them the new seven sisters, but tried <laughs> to get the new like, super majors going. I don't think it really took off. But, but, but they, the Financial Times, based on who actually controls the most oil, they think the super majors should be China National Petroleum Corporation, Gazprom, which is Russia, National Iranian Oil Company, Petrobras, which is Brazil, PDVSA, which is Venezuela, Petronas, which is Malaysia, and Saudi Aramco. Um, so you can sort of see, again, it's just like the idea that we have that the big oil control this industry is a perception that we need to change mm, um, mm. because they're some of the biggest companies in the world but they still pale in comparison to some of these state-owned enterprises. It's crazy. Yeah. So, Ren, when we're thinking about these um, upstream companies, the oil producers and explorers, it's important to consider their revenue and revenue is tied directly to the price of oil. Yes, they sell based on the international price and they be that becomes incredibly cyclical for all the reasons that we spoke about above. Uh, but, yes, they are directly exposed to the price of oil their revenue is dependent on it. So if you're in it, you're in for a roller coaster if the price of oil is going up yeah. and down and up and down. Yeah. So then we move to the midstream and these are the oil transporters, the truckies, the boats, the everything that moves from the oil producers through to the refineries. Now, I've pulled out a few names. Yeah. I want you to tell me if you've heard any of them. All right. Enterprise Midstream. No. Kinder Morgan. No. Enbridge. 
No. Trans Canada. No. Williams Companies. No. Plains All American. No. Energy Transfer Partners. No. Magellan Midstream. Which Magellan? <laughs> <laughs> I think my biggest takeaway from looking at these oil transporters is I just don't know any of them. Yeah. One of the biggest unlisted uh, pipeline companies globally is Coke Industries. Yep. Um, people have probably heard of the Coke brothers uh, if they follow American politics as well. K-O-C-H, not C-O-K-E. Correct. Yes. Yes. But, yeah, so this is an industry that I don't know a lot about. I, I'm not familiar with any of their companies. But I think the important thing here is revenue is driven by throughput. So in the same way that if you're in Australia, you think of mining services companies, they make their revenue from how much mineral, how much ore they service rather than the actual price per ton of the ore. That's the same here with oil transporters. Their revenue is driven by how much oil moves through their trucks or their pipelines rather than what the price of that oil gets on the market. But they are indirectly exposed to the oil price because if oil prices are high, the upstream producers are going to try and get more out of the ground if oil prices are low, they're going to try and get less out of the ground. So they're indirectly exposed, but their revenue is driven by throughput. Pipelines are an interesting one. Very, very political over in Europe and Russia. Is that right? Or is that gas? Uh, natural gas, but yeah, yeah. incredibly. Um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to mm. Germany is a big reason why Germany was a pretty weak hand in this Russia-Ukraine yeah. conflict. Yeah, yeah, their yeah. energy security is tied to Russia. To Russia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but also pipelines, massive political issue in the States. Obama stopped a couple of key ones, Keystone XL, you may have heard yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then Trump basically greenlit all of them. Biden comes in, stops a bunch of them. Pipelines are incredibly controversial. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. All right, well then let's move to the downstream and they're the refineries. Uh, they're the ones taking on the oil and turning it into useful stuff they remove impurities converting it into as we said at the top gas jet fuel heating oil asphalt you name it whatever oil goes into all right when I'll, I'll play the game to you okay. top five oil refineries in the world yeah. have you heard of them Jamnanga Refinery, Reliance Industries Limited in India. I have heard of Reliance Industries, biggest uh, listed company in India. Yes, massive. Can't, I'm going to just just front run you and say I won't heard of any of the specific refineries. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry, does that ruin the game? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, keep going. They pump out 1.24 million barrels a day. Then we've got the Ulsan Refinery, a South Korean company, SK Energy, 1.12 million barrels a day. Haven't heard of them. Surprising. Then we've got Paraguana Refinery Complex, uh, the Venezuelan company uh, PDVSA. Yeah. 971K barrels. You've heard of them? Oh, well, yeah, I have because they're one of the major upstream producers that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, then Yesu Refinery, uh, GS Caltex, which is owned by Chevron, uh, South Korean company, 730K barrels a day. I have heard of Chevron. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Then the Onsan Refinery, S-Oil, another South Korean comp company pumping out uh, 669,000 barrels a day. Uh, haven't, haven't heard, heard of them, it. but I am, I'm noticing, in noticing an interesting trend here. Yeah, and then ExxonMobil has one called Singapore Refinery in Singapore, and it does 605,000 barrels a day. It's interesting that uh, South Korea... Are in there, but not part of. Oh, they're not producing; they're refining. Yeah. So uh, the the big takeaways you named six there. Yeah. 
three in South Korea, three of the biggest in South Korea, yep. but also five of the biggest in Asia, India, South Korea, Venezuela, not, and then South Korea, South Korea, Singapore. So we dig it up in the Middle East and other parts of the world and ship it all the way through to Asia and South Korea to refine it. Yeah. That's interesting. What's, well, what's going on over there that gives them the edge over... Maybe close to, close to China. Yeah, I guess I have no I mean, idea. Uh, they're well, all, they're biggest, the biggest customer. They would all have a lot of ports like Singapore, South Korea. They're all, they've all got coastalines. Why don't the producers <laughs> also refine it, just double down? Maybe not the technology. Can't be that hard. They've got the cash to figure it out. Anyway, we'll have to give uh, Saudi Aramco a <laughs> ring. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not worth it for them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think the thing to say about downstream refineries is – their revenue is driven by end markets. So, you know, they're selling all the products that they create, kerosene, jet fuel, all that stuff to end markets. Uh, but they're obviously quite exposed to the oil price in terms of their costs if they're buying it from upstream producers to then refine, refine it. So their profitability is tied the oil price. That's a bit of a deep dive on the supply chain of of the oil industry. We should we should say we're Australian. There's Woodside and Santos. They're upstream producers. There's a bu- there's a couple of oil explorers, but when we're talking about a global industry, they're small. Yeah, yeah, tiny. Sorry, so- sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so let's have a quick look at how the industry is playing out today. We mentioned at the top there's profits galore at the moment, obviously directly tied to the oil price, but then we'll we'll turn our attention to uh, the transition of some of these companies and how they're uh, positioning themselves for the future given what's going on in the climate space. Yeah, so no surprise. We've said the oil price is high so many times in this episode uh, that – the most recent earnings season, so Q4 for 2021, we've seen massive profits. Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP and Total all returned to profitability and reported their biggest profits in the eight years. Eight years, 2014, last time oil was over $100 a barrel. But those five super majors, so you say here we're talking five super majors rather than seven, they posted a combined loss of $76 billion in 2020 and now they're all reporting record profits. So it just shows how cyclical the industry is. Shares in oil companies are up around 20% year to date across, across like the average across the board. But it's important to note that we could be reaching peak cycle. So in the same way that in 2014, profits peaked, the oil price peaked and share prices peaked in a lot of cases, and then oil price came down we could be reaching the peak cycle again. But right now, today, it's a good time to be in oil and gas. To give you an example, ExxonMobil in 2020, they made a loss of $22.4 billion, And in 2021, they made a profit of $23 billion. Imagine being in the finance department. It's trying, a, four, it's trying a $45 to fo- billion dollar turnaround, turnaround in a year. Trying to forecast that stuff. Oh, well, you'd just be like, <laughs> we're in the money. <laughs> but you'd also just be like... Yeah, anyway, but, cra- crazy, but crazy here's, stuff. Here's my quote of the day. I don't often do a quote of the day, but this was too good. I don't think you've ever done one. Okay, here's my <laughs> quote of the four and a half years we've been doing this podcast. Uh, BP's C- Chief Financial Officer, uh, Murray Ochoclos? Orkincloss? Yeah. Told investors on an earnings call, it's possible that we're getting more cash than we know what to do with. Unbelievable. Must be nice. But also, like... Come on, give it a crack. <laughs> <laughs> there must be stuff you can do with it. 
That's lazy. Well, we will get to that because that's the question that we set out to answer at the top here. What are they doing with all these profits? And Murray is honestly overwhelmed he's by the overwhelmed. amount of profits he's getting. And as, as the, well, the number one thing a CFO should be doing is allocating capital. And he's like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah. yeah, there's a whole other part of this conversation that we haven't put in this episode uh, about how the the UK government, where BP is based, want to do a one-off uh, super profits tax because inflation is really biting. There's some really sad stats coming out of the UK while BP are like Just sitting on piles of money, not knowing what to do with it. So on one hand, they're seeing super profits. On the other hand, we all know what the future holds for big oil. There will always be demand for oil. That's an important thing to stress. The world's oil consumption isn't going to go to zero, even if we completely change our transport systems, including you know, if if we can create hydrogen-powered planes and, like, all of that stuff, there will still be demand for oil in plastics and petrochemicals and a bunch of other stuff. There's inputs in so much in the economy. But demand is going to drop. Uh, the International Energy Agency expects demand will peak in 2025 and settle somewhere between 24 and 77 million barrels a day by 2050. Keep in mind that we're at about 97 million barrels a day today. So pretty wide range from the International Energy Agency. Reuters thinks uh, demand will be about 40 to 64 million barrels per day by 2050. So again, you know, probably around half of what we're consuming today. <laughs> the US government's pretty bullish. This is classic, the though. US government energy information agency put out a prediction that oil would remain the top source of energy in 2050 and that we'd be consuming more. Today, we consume about 97 million barrels a day. The US thinks we'll consume 120 million barrels a day by 2050. Classic energy from the States. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So predictions vary, but on the whole, we expect probably oil consumption to drop maybe half by 2050. And the pressure's on. The pressure is on for big oil to change. Last year, a Dutch court ordered Shell to cut carbon emissions by 45% by 2030. An activist investor group won two seats on ExxonMobil's board and investors outvoted Chevron's management as shareholders around, uh, I think it was around climate concerns. But yeah, we're we're seeing a lot of pressure on these companies. Uh, We sort of know what the writing on the wall is around the shift to electric vehicles and stuff like that. And these companies are seeing stupid amounts of profit at the moment. So the question is, how are they spending their big profits? Where are they investing for the future? Well, BP don't know what they're doing, uh, <laughs> but let's have a look at other other companies. Uh, the first thing you would probably want to do is repay down, repay some debt, and that's what they are doing. They're repaying debt that they accrued over COVID nineteen. Uh, remember that in two thousand and twenty, when oil dipped to its negative thirty seven dollars, these companies would have been in a world of hurt. Probably would have had to have borrowed a lot of money. Uh, they're increasing their dividends. The Guardian said that thirty six point five billion dollars has pa- been paid out over the first nine months of two thousand and twenty one, and in other ways. Uh, of returning shares, uh, share value back is buying 
back shares. The Guardian said $8 billion in buybacks over the first nine months of 2021. ExxonMobil, for example, they had a profit of $23 billion in 2021, back from that loss of $22.4 billion in 2020, and they've raised their dividend and repurchased $10 billion in shares. So they're returning capital to shareholders. Yep. What we're not saying are two other things, which they could be doing with their their cash. They Climate could, transition. They could be, well, yeah, they could be investing in uh, expanding oil production. Yeah. Or they could be ex- investing in uh, low carbon technologies, carbon capture technologies. But interestingly, we're not saying either of those things. In 2014, you saw a lot of investment in new oil production. Uh, so you're not saying that this time around, but you're not saying the transition to low carbon mm. stuff. So what you're actually saying is a lot of the oil majors scale back their capital spend and their investments overall. Uh, ExxonMobil said they were looking to spend between 30 to $35 billion a year in 2019. They've scaled that back to 21 to $24 billion. Uh, Chevron were, said they were looking to spend $20 billion in 2019. Now they're looking to spend $15 you see, you're seeing that sort of across the board. The Europeans are willing to spend more than the Americans, but I think it's just a really interesting dynamic that these companies are sort of returning money to shareholders, shrinking their share capital base, strengthening their balance sheet. So trying to become make themselves really attractive investment options, mm. but it feels like they're not really investing for their future. Yeah. But the one final thing to note is the divergence between the Europeans and the Americans, I think. Because while the Americans uh, the Americans being ExxonMobil and Chevron aren't uh, – they're, they're investing tiny amounts in some of this uh, low-carbon technology, the Europeans are doing a little bit more. I think BP, the company that doesn't know what to do with all their money, is probably leading the way. They've got plans to dedicate 40% of their budget to low-carbon investments by 2025 – they want to ramp that up to 50% by 2030 and at that time they want to be earning between 9 and $10 billion a year from the low carbon sector. So they're pretty bullish. They've committed to net zero by 2050. They're building a 250 megawatt solar farm in Spain. They've acquired a wind energy company, EOLFI. They've announced they're going to reduce their oil output by 40% uh, by 2030, which is about a million barrels a day. So there's plans. There's plans in the works. So, and there's another one in Europe, uh, the French company Total. So uh, they are putting $3.5 billion into renewables. Love to see it. Uh, in 2020, they won Europe's largest electric vehicle charge point contract in the Netherlands. Wow. And invested in both onshore and offshore wind. So they're really getting into the EV game there. Love to see it. Shell, they've committed to net zero by 2050. That's massive. They're probably just going to be buying bulk carbon credits, you would imagine. Mm. How will they otherwise achieve that? Great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe we should get the Shell CEO on to do a retail earnings uh, call and ask them. We set out to answer what are these companies doing with their super profits. The answer is shoring up their balance sheet, returning money to shareholders. The second question is what are they doing in response to climate change? I think we can see the European companies, Total, BP and Shell, mm. are doing a little. The Americans, ExxonMobil, 
and Chevron are doing less. Yeah. I think overall, so the International Energy Agency have basically come out and said, come on, guys. Yeah. They've said that investment to date by oil and gas companies outside their core business areas of oil and gas is less than 1% of their total capital spend. And that's not going to come. It's hard to convince companies that are seeing record profits and so much cash that they don't know what to do with uh, to think beyond the oil, I think. You know what what I mean? Yeah. They might argue that we think carbon capture technology is going to save us and oil output isn't going to drop. Yeah. Or that we're going to find a new way of refining it. You guys have got it all wrong. Drilling it. Yeah. 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 For me, it's pretty interesting because me not being an oil and gas executive, but (laughs) me just thinking about where the world is going. If I was a BP CFO with no idea how much money, no, no idea what to spend all my money on. I would probably be thinking about like what's the businesses that we can acquire that can mm, get us mm, into acquisition, a competitive space in the new energy sector yeah. or like what can we build internally ourselves or how do we leverage our gas pipelines to start moving hydrogen and, mm. you know, like. Similar to Fortescue here in Australia and their green fund. Yeah, yeah. and I'm sure, I'm sure those conversations are happening in boardrooms. I guess we as public market investors looking from the outside in, and I guess the International Energy Agency is outside experts looking from the outside in probably aren't seeing as much as we would want to see. Yeah. But if you're not worried about the sustainability concerns of big oil and all you care about is the profits, you're pretty happy at the moment. Yeah. You're happy with the dividends. You're happy with the buybacks. And happy you're happy with the, with price the share oil. price. Yeah. <laughs> How long will it last? Unknown. Until OPEC Until can OPEC, yeah. sort their supply issues Hit their out. quotas or decide to. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, a great uh, summation of the oil industry. We uh, covered a lot of ground there, but no doubt that there is uh, plenty plenty going on, both from a geolitic, geopolitical point of view, demand and supply. There's just so many uh, interesting factors that go into the oil industry and, and plenty of ways to invest in it and get access, be it through... Um, you know, the upstream, midstream, downstream players. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Such an integral part of our, inco- mm. our our economy. And if you don't want to pick a winner, there's stupid amounts of ETFs. I was going to put a section in here of the ETFs you could invest in, but there's too many. It's too many. Way too many. There's ETFs of the oil companies. There's ETFs on the oil price. There's levered ETFs. There's inverse ATFs. Um, so if you want to go- I think I, that reminds me. I think at one point I did go like a triple levered oil yeah. ETF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done, definitely done that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what the ticket code was. It was over in the States. Uh, it did pretty well actually. But again, it goes up and up and then bang, straight back down. And so- It's very you, cyclical. You just yeah. can't. It's, yeah, it's so hard to know what to do. Anyway, Ren, that was a lot of fun. If you would like to know more about the macroeconomic environment beyond just oil, make sure you go and check out Comedian V Economist. Uh, They're another one of the shows in our network uh, hosted by brothers Thomas the Economist and Adam the Comedian. They uh, unpack everything that you need to know uh, that's going on in the the macroeconomic landscape. So uh, go and check that out. 
But Ren, it's been fun. If you would like to uh, suggest an industry for us to dive into, hit us up at contact at equitymates.com or we're on socials. Uh, you'll find us anywhere and you can hit us up there. We'll do our best to reply. Uh, but uh, Ren, it's always great to chat stocks and industries and uh, it was a lot of fun. We'll pick it up next week. Sounds good. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.